Well, good afternoon, Grant Ouch, and great to see you in the room with a view studio. Welcome. Great to be here. And uh, we are talking about a room with a view, but we're in a room with no view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit counterintuitive. We are, we've been very inspired and we've built this little homemade studio and we are recording our second podcast and thank you everyone for listening to our first one. Grant, what are we talking about today? You, you are using a recent event to have a deeper conversation, I believe. Yeah, last week, uh, NBA legend Bill Russell passed away uh, at the age of 88. Um, not a household name in Australia, but um, one of the most iconic figures in the history of the NBA. So I did a lot of, uh, I'm an NBA fan, I did a lot of reading and understanding him um, as part of his legacy. Uh, he has an amazing journey. So he was an uh, 11-time NBA champion, so almost twice as many titles as Michael Jordan. Uh, he did two titles as a player coach, which is unbelievable. Um, he was the first black head coach of any sport in America, major sport. Uh, but he was a fundamental player in the civil rights movement in America. So in reading through his journey, it's a really interesting uh, journey. It's full of, I guess, highs and lows and things that he probably didn't sign up for when he became a basketball player, which I think, you know, it really led me down this thought process of, now whilst I'm not comparing any of our journeys to something that that major and that important, but we all go through these journeys where we have these tracks running in our life. You know, we have a career track where we're getting our experience, um, we're learning our craft, becoming experts in our craft. Side by side with that, you know, we have the maturity piece where we go through different phases of our life. We learn, we grow. But then there are these moments that happen which are life-changing, which you didn't ask for, you didn't see them coming, but you certainly can't deny what they do to you as a person. And so those things, I think, from a leadership standpoint, when we talk about the things that make us who we are and maybe make us good at what we do as leaders, those things are actually as important, if not more important, than the other two. So I wanted to really flesh that out with you today. I can't wait for this conversation. Uh, just to be clear, it's not all about basketball. In fact, well, that's it's not about basketball at all. At actually. all. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. All right, let's rip in. This is Room with a View. Okay, Grant, so that song, Underdog, I haven't heard before. You've put us onto it. Uh, can you tell us the reason for that introduction song? So that is by a band called Rockstar Supernova. And back in about 2006, 2007, they used to run these uh, talent shows and it was to find a lead singer for a, a famous rock band. Uh, In Excess were the first one to do that. And then the second, ep oh, the second season of that, was actually for the supergroup, which they called Supernova. It was uh, Tommy Lee from Motley Crue on drums, Jason Newstead from Metallica on bass, and Gilby Clark, who was in Guns N' Roses for a period on guitar, and they were finding a lead singer. So they put out an album, they did a tour. Um, that song takes me back to a time where 
one of my major life changes or life experiences that changed me as a person happened. So when I think of that uh, period of my life, that song was actually uh, front and centre. Well, let's, let's talk about that. So tell us about Bill Russell. Tell us about how this links in to what you'd like to talk about being life-changing moments. So Bill Russell, uh, obviously an 11-time NBA champion. So he won, I think, almost twice as many as Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan has 22, I think, individual accolades. Bill had 17. So he's still, MJ still thought of as the GOAT, but Bill is the winningest player of all time. Two of those championships as a, as a coach and a player at the same time, which is amazing. First black head coach in professional sport in America. Um, he went through some incredibly bad things as part of that journey, uh, including his house being uh, ransacked, you know, defaced, all these things, very different time in the world. He pushed through those things and he punched back hard and he was front and centre with Muhammad Ali, Martin Luther King Jr. There's photos of all of these guys together. They really created a united front and pushed forward together. But you think about someone who's achieved greatness in their chosen field and he didn't sign up for this, mm. you know, those aspects. He certainly didn't sign up for those when he became a basketball player. Um, yes, his basketball skills were super important. Uh, his leadership developed, I'm sure, as time went on. But then you get to the pointy end where he's a, a player coach, very different, and he's dealing with a civil rights movement in America. So everything he experienced in that time, did that make him way better <laughs> at what he did? And I would suggest probably... And his, his legacy, his impact is enduring. I mean, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, these guys are billionaires because Bill Russell literally cleared all of the uh, obstacles that would be in front of them. So why, why haven't we heard of Bill Russell? We obviously know of Michael Jordan and Muhammad Ali and you, you put them in the same, well, you put him in the same Absolutely. breath as Muhammad Ali. Yes. But yet we probably haven't heard of Bill Russell like Muhammad Ali here in Australia. Yeah, how sports stars are revered and how they're reported is interesting as you go through the eras. Um, and even now, you always hear Michael Jordan, LeBron James. That's the GOAT debate. I mean, there's 10 players who could be in that debate, really. So how, how society picks up these people and runs with them, I think uh, for us in Australia, obviously NBA really became a phenomenon when Michael Jordan came through. Pre that, the reporting of it here would have been very, very little. So that that's why I mean, it's a timing. It's a timing issue. Absolutely, but in America, everybody knows who he is. Okay. Yeah. So what do you? He, he's up. He passed away, and that's had an impact on you. And you you see that as a significant moment. How are you linking that then to what you'd like to talk about today? Yeah. So I obviously I follow the NBA pretty closely. So I was very aware of who he was. I listened to a, a podcast that really detailed his life the day that he passed away. Um, and really what it got me thinking was, you know, these, these leadership journeys that we're all, we're all trying to go through. Like he went through all of those and he obviously had the career side, he had the maturity side that he had to go through, but it was the moments off the court where he actually, I guess, experienced the most poignant things for his development um, that led him to be who he was and really I would suggest made the career aspects and what he had to do as a leader, it would have changed the way he approached it for sure. So when we look at our journeys, 
you know, do we have things that happen to us in our life that are probably more impactful than the experience we're gaining through certain periods when we're interviewing people for roles? Are we unpacking who these people really are? Do we understand what capability, what fundamentals these people bring? Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot in there that we can really unpack together and talk through some of our anecdotes and, and really, I guess, uh, think about what is, when you get to the leadership uh, space, what's really important? Like what's driving your outcomes? And, and what do you, where do you, if you distill that down, what do you make of that? Is it, is it moments? Is it a journey? Is it, is it experience? How do you define someone as a leader? I think there's no one answer uh, that, that is, you know, covers all bases. But what I would say is experience and capability allow you to be an expert in any chosen field. And that is obviously very important. As you mature, you see things in, in different, through different lenses, which allows you to maybe make better decisions, hopefully, as you, as you grow. But every now and then, there will be a significant moment that fundamentally shifts you as a person. We can probably look at your career journey and understand maybe, we can maybe summarise where you might be looking at your journey. In terms of maturity, we might be able to look at you as, a, as an 18-year-old or as a 40-year-old and make some assumptions that you might have some different things with you on that journey. With the big life-changing moments, we can't assume a thing. We have no idea what someone else has endured, un, uh, gone through, experienced that makes them unique and maybe gives them something that we're looking for. And do you, you think we don't, we don't look for that enough? Well, it's very hard. I mean, we're talking about intangible things. Quite often they're personal things. You could not Without put, trust, you can't. You can't without really. trust, absolutely. I think it would be impossible to put them in a cover letter or a CV, which is you know, primarily the way we introduce ourselves when we're looking for leaders. So unless we're known, unless we're a known entity, we've had a long relationship where you know me, I know you well, sure, you'll know those things and you can, you can pick them out. But if you're, if you're going for something new or we're looking to bring in new leaders into the business, give us, uh, you know, something we might not have had before, very hard to identify those things, but they're super important. Mm. I saw an interview with Ben Crow, who's Ash Barty's, mind coach and uh, it was after she won the Australian Open and clearly you know looking back now on history she's about to retire and it probably makes this this commentary all make sense uh, Ben Crow said if you think Ash Barty is designed by championship wins you're sadly mistaken she's mm. not yeah um, tennis is just a vehicle for her to be able to show who she is as a person and it's what makes Ash Barty as a person far more interesting than winning championships on a tennis court absolutely and I think, you know, the, the subject we're talking about now, for, for people who are coming into their early stages of their career, it's really about understanding you're on a journey, right? There's things ahead of you. Look out for them. They have value. Um, for people who are in that emerging leader space, really tap into these things. There's things about you that make you special. Tap into them. Don't, don't ignore them. Certainly don't suppress them. Really understand them. Bring them out. And then for people who are experienced, who are looking back, trying to bring people through, take a really close look at these people as you bring them through. And I suppose look at yourself because oh, what you're, you're actually talking about hanging on to things that probably provide a fair bit of discomfort. 
They do, yeah. And and uh, it was about, you know, with the, the process of making diamonds, it's not smooth, right? <laughs> so everything that I would bring up in terms of things that have really shaped me, like fundamentally shifted me as a person, were not great at the time. But looking back now, amazing. Yeah, great change comes from periods of discomfort, great discomfort. Yeah. So do you want to go there? So should we... We, absolutely. Let's, let's talk about that. So this is about a, a shift where your life takes a shift going from one direction mm-hmm. and it almost takes a, a turn, a sharp turn, yep. left or right. Yeah. Um, can you describe one of those moments for you? Yeah, for me, uh, up until about 2006-ish, I had a pretty good run, I'll say. So my career growth... My well, you came a long way from being the, the friend of the yeah. boss's son. <laughs> yeah, I had a pretty smooth run, I will say, looking back now. So my career growth, uh, my, you know, my ability to mature and have things in my life not really go through too much turmoil. I was pretty lucky there. And then in 2000, I think it was either late 2006, early 2007, I was working in the Northern Territory. I was a regional FC. We had some moves with senior people being moved to other roles and it left some gaps which we couldn't fill immediately. I was asked to run two hotels and do my regional finance job, which I said, sure, no problems. It was supposed to be for three or four weeks it ended up being, I think, six or seven months in the end. So I was working six days a week, you know, 18 hours a day for six months plus. The day that the guy came in to replace in the two hotel role, I fainted in, like I passed out in the office. I collapsed and I was making, I was just making a coffee and I passed out. And You don't remember it at all? You remember making the coffee, but you don't remember anything after that? I remember walking up to make the coffee. I remember putting the, the coffee in the cup, and then the next thing, I'm on the ground. So I got up, I walked back to my desk. I sat at my desk, really out of sorts, thinking, you know, what just happened to me? Uh, my heart's beating through my chest. And immediately I think, okay, I'm having a heart attack. And I get my assistant and say, look, you got to drive me to hospital. Um, this is not good. I'm having a heart attack. So drove me to hospital. Uh, went in to see the doctor and he said, Mr. Alchin, you are not having a heart attack. You're having a panic attack. <laughs> and honestly, uh, my brain, the way my brain works, uh, I argued with this guy for five minutes. We learned that about you last week. You're pretty headstrong. Once yeah. you think you know the way, you know the way. Yeah, so I argued with this guy. Anyway, he turned the heart monitor around. He's like, look at the heart monitor, right? And so here it was. Beep, beep. And immediately my symptoms went away. And I was like, okay, fair enough, I'm not having a heart attack. But I refused to believe I was having a panic attack. So I was having lunch with a friend of mine, I think two days later, they've handed me over these printouts of information on anxiety, panic attacks. I've read it and gone, uh, <laughs> okay. This is me. Uh, this is me. Um, and so that came out of nowhere. Um, I was not envisaging that to be something that I had to then work through. It took me two years to go from that point to where I'm walking down the street to work, literally smelling the daisies, feeling like my life could not get any better. So there was a journey in there of about two years and I I would look back on that and say, anyone who worked with me between 2007, 2009 probably thought, you know what, this guy's not engaged he's not doing a great job 
uh, all sorts of things, I'm sure. So was it was it anxiety, depression that led up to that point of the panic attack? Like, did you have diagnosed? No, 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 not at all. That's why I, I refused. It was completely to out of the blue. Out of the blue, and so that then led me to a journey that is now 15 years plus of trying to understand human behaviour, the brain, underlying psychology. The fact that my conscious brain could be making a cup of coffee but my subconscious brain could send my body out. into meltdown. Yep. I honestly couldn't believe it when, I, when it happened. And so then when, once you start going down that rabbit hole of understanding the brain, it's a fascinating thing. Like it's honestly, it's... We, we know so little, even though there's a lot of information available. It still astounds me today when I hear something, I'll hear like a psychological principle and go, oh, wow, that's something I see. That's something I do see. I might try and incorporate that and find out if that's real. 99.9% of the time it absolutely is. So uh, it made me, obviously the journey was pretty tough to go through, but it made me a completely different human being coming out the back. Um my wife met me in 2007 and could not stand me at all. <laughs> Did not want to know me. Um, and then at the end of that journey, very, very different scenario. Um, certainly as a dad, you know, there's all these phases where now I'm studying all of that stuff in terms of raising my, my daughters. But, yeah, that journey started from a, an incident that I really didn't appreciate <laughs> But now it's given me so much in terms of how I approach leadership, how I approach fatherhood, how I approach being a husband, uh, how I actually approach getting things done. So in everyday business life, there are great principles that you can apply that just give you an opportunity maybe to be successful. It's not like you're, you know, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> or anything like that. But if you understand how the brain works you can actually use that to your benefit. Do you think everybody has a degree of anxiety? I can't see how you wouldn't because I didn't have, you know, major things happening in my life that were causing me, like, say, sadness or things like that. Um, I, I can't see how most people wouldn't at different times. It's, it's a physical response to subconscious thought patterns. So we're all prone to it. Seems to me too that... It's our own personal expectations of ourselves that drives anxiety. Yeah, what, what I learnt through that process, which what allowed me to, to move past that and put it in the rearview mirror and not have to worry about it anymore, was that you're completely in control of this thing, even though it feels like you're not when you first experience it. So once you unpack how your thoughts are shaped, your internal dialogue, uh, you start to understand... There's, there's more than one way to view a situation you're in. There's more than one way to think about scenarios that happen to you. And depending on which path you take, that's what sets off physical reactions. So um, so, you, so, so just, to, just to understand that, yeah. you can now identify when you're going down a path that you need to sort of say to yourself, hey, stop, this is not going to, this is not going to end well unless you make some changes here. Oh, I can identify situations where depending on the choice I make in my thoughts is where this thing's going to go uh, absolutely and so we all have physically mentally emotionally yeah so 
I'll give you a really, really basic example, and this is not something that I have done. It's just an example to make it easy to understand. So you're on your way to work. You've got a really important meeting. You're presenting to your boss on something super important. You get a flat tyre, right? Mm. You're 10 minutes to the meeting. Yeah, there'd be a few swear words. Right. So now the choice you have in that moment is what I'm talking about. Mm. You can be someone who thinks this always happens to me. I cannot believe this. Oh, yes. All those things, right? Or you can go, it's a flat tyre. i got to call my boss and say, hey, i got a flat tyre. And it will be completely fine. The thing that I'm presenting on will be there in two hours when I get there. I actually don't have anything to worry about. My life is completely fine. I will be okay. Move along. That is the most beautiful segue. And I didn't expect to talk about this today with you. But going back to Ash Barty and Ben Crow. And Ben Crow, you can find him uh, on Google and he's done plenty of podcasts. But he was asked about this, uh, this notion of redefining your life. How do you redefine your life? And he said there's two parts to redefining your life and making it the best possible version it can be. And I hope, Ben, if you listen to this, please shout us out. We'd love to hear from you and I hope I've done it justice. Uh, but we are a huge... We are, well, I am a huge fan. Uh, I'd love to make contact. He, he said that it's made up of two parts. Number one, you've got to accept life is unfair. Mm. If you can accept that life is unfair and move through that very quickly as opposed to that internal dialogue you get of, I can't believe this is happening to me, this is always happening to me. It's not always happening to you. It happens to everybody. Yeah. Like Life is unfair. Get through it, accept it, and move into managing it. Mm. Once you can move through that part quickly, it leads to point two, yeah. which is the practice of gratitude. When you are in a good spot and good things happened, try and stay there. Absolutely. Be appreciative for it and, and accept that and live there. So it's about moving through and accepting that life is unfair. Get to a place of gratitude and try and stay there for as long as you can. Yep. And I have that conversation with my family all the time. So, and particularly when the girls are talking about certain things and I'll say to them, what you, what you want, you want justice. That's what you want. Yes. And I, you will not get that, right? I'm going to break it to you now. Yes. Justice will not be done because we don't control so many of the elements in the situation. Yes. What we can do is we can then control how we perceive the situation. We can control our need for justice and learn that we're okay. Everything will be okay and we can move forward. So it's not that you accept things that happen to you, but your ability to navigate those and move forward in a way that's healthy for you is is super important yes push it into a management process yeah as opposed to arguing with yourself or with others about the rightness or wrongness of this thing happening yeah even even second guessing conversations all of those things that you can't change don't add value to your life they just add layers of stress awesome uh let's take a quick break this is room with a view thank you grant Just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. All lies and jest, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. All right, we're back uh, with Scott and Grant. This is Room With A View. So that song is a choice of yours. Um, 
you've heard from me about something that was quite important to me. That that uh, that song is important to you. Take us through an example for you. Yeah, well, that song, uh, The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel, I do remember... You know when you start out in life and, and your exposure to music is your mum and dad's record collection. So uh, this was uh, in mum and dad's record collection along with ABBA and uh, Hooked on Jazz and some other <laughs> records that I really had no interest in. <laughs> but I did find Simon and Garfunkel and Bridge. I think the album was Bridge Over Troubled Water actually and this song The Boxer I could really relate to. Uh, I, I, had, I had the most amazing childhood like we talked about. Uh, loving family, uh, wonderful suburban life of footy in the winter and cricket in the summer. But uh, I I was the fat kid with no friends in my primary school and uh, every lunchtime was quite confronting for me and uh, I was the victim of pretty savage bullying. I went to an all-boys school and it it just seemed like it was kind of relentless. And boys at that age are relentless. Yeah, it's it's not that it's even... Overly hurtful. It is just relentless, and I can only imagine what it's like today. Like the, the absolute solitude I had was the ability to get on the bus and come home. And then at, at home, I was in my happy place. And look, I had some good friends. And if my friends are listening to this podcast, um, thank you. I mean, my friends at school were uh, amazing, and some of them are, are still my friends today. But there was this group of individuals that were just absolutely nasty and would not ever let go. And uh, I suppose that's when you come back to that, you know, this is not fair. This is not right. I don't deserve this. Uh, And uh, I think, you know, you talked about, well, that panic attack moment of making the coffee and you're now more attuned to the way that others are around you and you're looking out for some of these cues. And I know you do. I I see you do it. And I I know the conversations we have about people and about the impacts of uh, anxiety and depression and uh, how we make people feel, I'm the same when it comes to bullies. I can't stand bullies. And I, I, uh, I make it my mission to, to look for that and protect those that are the victims of bullying and, uh, and, and to stand up to bullies. I, I, it, and it, it, it's hardwired in me from that time. And that's the interesting piece, right? So it's hardwired. Like you can't unexperience that and, and nor would you want to because... Yeah, removing that type of element from society is not a bad thing. Um, clearly, how does that play out in your in your leadership style? I think I I think I get described as someone with a big heart and who cares for people, and I think that's it. I as, along with other things that were going on for me back then. So. Um, the fact that my mum and dad worked very, very hard and my, my grandparents were very involved in my life and just great giving people, um, just um, absolutely put in a, a lot more than anyone could ever expect them to do. And uh, then you combine this um, issue that I was going through at primary school and I was a rat bag in the high school. I, I, I mean, I didn't take that learning in... in primary school and apply at the high school like I was a rat pack I probably flipped too far the other way to be honest like and for anyone that I I might have um hurt in high school I'm I'm sorry and uh I I think it's just part of life's journey Uh, but now I I'm very clear that 
we've got a responsibility to care for people that need caring for and to, to give back to people. Everyone deserves a chance. And do you think um, there's a protection element there? So when you're at school, you're with a bunch of people who are not your family. You want them to be a protective force. They're not providing that for you. And then you're going home. Did you discuss it with your parents much? Because a lot of kids do actually keep it to themselves for, for a long period of time. I think mum and dad would have known there was stuff going on. There, I, I remember, and I'm talking about the age of the nine or ten. Because yeah. then, then I started to really focus on what I was good at and then what I was good at became a currency. Yeah. Right? Then I stopped yeah. getting bullied. You know, I think that's why I liked, got into sport ultimately yeah. Yeah. because I, there were some skills that I had that then – and that provided then a whole cohort of, of friends around me and a different mm-hmm. circle of – and I felt safe then. And then high school, my life was very different. I had one or two really close friends that – were protectors and and then my 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 um, well, sporting teammates. Um, no, I don't. I don't think I felt let down by the bullies. I don't. Like I don't think I've, I. I never really felt like I should deserve to be safe. I came from an outside school into this school that I was at, uh, and I was a little bit of an outsider from day one. And I sort of took that as being the way that it was. Uh, but I could just never get in. And I was always sort of on the outer mm. until I until I worked out okay I can I can play footy, and I'm going to use uh, subconsciously I'm going to use footy to help me then. And I, in 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 high school I loved high school, so uh, back then to primary school I don't think I ever would have said to mum and dad like this is I, I'm struggling here. But there were definitely days I didn't want to go to school. Mm. And so do you think for you now now fast forward you're in charge of a large network. Do you think it plays out that you want to make sure that you're providing a safe space for everybody, which wasn't necessarily available for you in that period? Like, has that really come through to now? <laughs> well, to all the people I work with now, that they, were, I, I'm guessing they would say, "Hey, I see that now. Yeah. That makes sense to me." I'm yeah. always talking about safe places. Like, we've got to be a safe place for people to stay in in the hotel environment, uh, and as hoteliers, you know, that's what we're talking about. But it's got to be a safe place for people to stay. And I'm talking safety beyond physical safety. Mm. I'm talking about um, equality. I'm talking about diversity. I'm talking every single person that comes and stays with us, uh, we treat as a guest and, and everything that comes from that. And safety isn't implied. Um, it's, well, it's, it's actually the entry point of service. And then those that work with us, yeah, they should be able to work in a safe place, um, physically, mentally, emotionally, and everyone has a story. Everyone should feel valued and valued from the story they bring, uh, not necessarily anything else. And Which talks to what you said about the story part. Yeah, and I think this is the importance of what we're talking about today. So that makes you someone who provides a very safe and user-friendly environment for a wide range of people every day. It comes from something that you wouldn't talk about openly in an interview. <laughs> you couldn't put it on your CV anywhere. But these are the unknowns that exist inside everybody that are so important when we're trying to shape leaders, we're trying to grow leaders, identify the people who should be in leadership positions and when we're trying to be great leaders ourselves these are so important mm. yeah that that's right and and just while we've been talking here i'm 
I'm thinking in a way, uh, and we had this conversation this morning, uh, a colleague and I about, and I was getting ready for this podcast, Grant, and thinking about how do you translate some of this stuff to a job interview? You've really got to get, only got to ask two questions, uh, and maybe you've got a different view on this, but tell us your story, and really tell us your story. Like, I want to understand who you are. Like, what, what makes you tick? What are the moments in your life that define who you are as a person and who you are as a, if you're hiring a leadership role, a leader? Yeah. Uh, and then tell us a story. And, that, and I think my experience with that is you do have to be a bit more targeted. So because quite often they're not used to be asked, being asked that question. There are behavioural questions. There are you know, capability questions. So when you give them a broad statement like that, tell us your story, um, Sometimes it is hard, particularly if there's not a trust element there, to then bring that out. One question, I've been doing GM interviews in the last week and one of the questions I always ask is, what is the hardest thing you've ever had to do in your professional life? It's quite targeted. Quite often they take a little while to think about it, but then they'll come out. And every time I get a great answer, every single time. And they would never, I don't believe they would ever willingly share that but it's such a great insight into who they are. Um, you learn a lot uh, from that question. And there's a couple of others, but that one I really like hearing people's responses. Very good. All right, well, look, let's take our, let's take our last break, Grant. Uh, I need to go <laughs> have a, a glass of water and a, a lie down after that. Uh, but let's take our last break. This is Room With A View uh, back after this song. Grant, uh, a great song there, Brian Adams, Summer of 69. I think for anyone of our vintage, that song is an absolute staple in the, I'm guessing it was record, maybe cassette, perhaps? Definitely cassettes. Definitely Definitely cassettes. cassettes. Why did you choose that song? That one is from a period where I lived in Fiji. Uh, There's a lot to talk about in that. I think we'll do that in our next episode. We'll unpack Fiji, but... Uh, the funny story behind that song though is obviously I play drums we had a house band at the resort I was very very close with the guy who ran the music at the resort I helped him set up his business across the country Um, I was in Suva for the weekend and he was playing the band was playing at a nightclub and he said come and play a song with us you know and I said sure and so he said to me like you'll go on you can come and play with us you'll go on at like 8pm I said yeah Cool, no worries. So I was at the Holiday Inn, sitting there with a corona at 8pm, no call. I'm waiting for this text to say, come over now and play with us. 10pm, I'm four coronas in, no text message. So I decided I'm just going to go over to this nightclub, because uh, I had a couple of friends with me who were expats in the hotel. We just thought, we'll go over to this nightclub and see what's actually happening. 
So I've probably had four or five beers. I'm pretty relaxed. I walked into the bar. They're on stage playing away. I went to the bar. I ordered a beer. And I walked back to my table with the beer. And on the mic, he says, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest celebrity drummer tonight <laughs> all the way from Australia. And he calls me up on stage. So... So what, just for those of us that are not musical, what happens if you're a drummer and you're four Coronas in? Do you lose time? Well, in my mind, it was the best thing I've ever done, but <laughs> I don't have a video of it. But I have some photos of it, but not a video. But So I have no choice. There's 300 people, like, clapping. So I put my beer down. I walk up on stage. Now, we've never played this song together ever. So I count us in and away we go. And so we play the song and then... Towards the end of the song, yeah, I think you remember the, the tale of the song. It's just constantly going over and over. So everyone's looking at me because I'm the drummer. To, I, to wind you up, to wind we, up the song. And, so, and then we've realised at the end of this song, we've never played this before. We don't know how to finish. <laughs> so the guy who's like the band leader, he's got the guitar. He comes over and stands with me and I've nodded to say, like, watch my lead. I will basically play us out. And so I've played a fill and everyone's got it. They're all great musicians over there. Everyone's got it. And then we finished this song and he winked at me like that was awesome, like we nailed it. So then I've walked off stage and continued uh, drinking my beer and hanging out with everybody. But that song takes me back to that nightclub, <laughs> that Saturday night in Suva. In a, in a small world moment, there is a colleague that I work with that actually dated Brian Adams. Oh, wow. So uh, you know who you are. Uh, that one's also for you. Yeah, so the Fiji piece, uh, for me, I was there for five years. There's some massive things that shaped me from that period, which I think we'll get into on the next episode. Yeah, I think this is a really good subject, and I know that you've received feedback on our first podcast, and one of the pieces of feedback that we did receive was about trying to talk about some of this kind of thing that, mm. that young professionals are dealing with. It's that whole level of expectation, the desire for the or the perceived desire to be perfect, and how do you reconcile that? So we should we should devote the next podcast to part two. Absolutely. Sounds good. So uh, tell us, uh, just roughly speaking, what sort of feedback did you get from our first podcast? Uh, look, I was very grateful to anyone who took the time to listen, uh, engage with us, uh, and I had a lot of feedback. Everyone was very uh, gracious about uh, taking the time to listen to it. It went obviously longer than we thought, <laughs> Uh, and you can hear that when we're recording it. Um, but look, people were listening to it where we thought they would be listening to it, in the car, at the gym. Uh, a lady I spoke to this morning said she was getting her nails done when she listened to it, wow. which is interesting. That's interesting. Uh, but I do think overall uh, people did enjoy the authenticity that it is really um, an ability just to eavesdrop on you and I having a conversation that you and I would have anyway and really understand what we're talking about. So I think overall the po uh, the feedback was quite positive, which was really great. Do you like the music? Uh, do you like the movie Love Actually? It's one of those staples that <laughs> goes every year. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, look, it's a very well-made movie, that one, actually. Okay, so I think with the help of our audience, we can be literally the Billy Mac of podcasting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that song, Christmas is All Around, and Billy Mac's desire to get Christmas is All Around trending in the week of Christmas. Uh, we'd love you to listen to our podcast and to like and subscribe and give us a rating and let's see whether you can get us trending. <laughs> <laughs> the Billy Mac of podcasting. All right, so 
Uh, we've been picking some songs that are meaningful to our childhood today. I'm going to throw now to Bono and the Boys with an absolute classic. This uh, this band, U2, had a profound impact on on my childhood and upbringing and uh this song particularly is what got me hooked on music. Um, the Larry Mullen Jr. drums. Uh, as a drummer, can you relate to this song? Yeah, he's he's got some uh, drum tracks. When you watch him, he doesn't appear to be this tech, technical drummer. Um, but when you listen to his drum tracks on their own, in, in a number of songs, he's phenomenal. And he, he actually just wanted to start a band. He, mm. He's a self-taught drummer that put an ad in the local high school for bandmates to join him and uh, that became you too. So here he is, Larry Mullen Jr. with Bono, Edge and Adam Clayton with uh, an absolute classic. Uh, Thanks very much, Grant. Always good to chat. Can't wait to talk next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Please like and subscribe. Make us the Billy Mac of podcasting and we look forward to speaking to you soon. I can't wait. Great. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. you.